Welcome to the Data Knowledge Action for Urban Systems podcast series. In this series, we shall explore systems used to build intelligent urban systems, technology used to innovate systems capable of collecting, storing, processing, analyzing, and evaluating data on the most prevalent health-related issues in cities' different sector, like transportation, employment, housing, public health, and public space. This series is brought to you jointly by CoData, the Committee on Data of the International Science Council, Urban Health and Wellbeing Program, and Center for Applied Geometrics, Research and Development Foundation. Via this series, we bring to you reflections on the interdisciplinary approaches and the innovative use converting data knowledge action systems for healthy cities. Hi, this is Shelly Gandhi from CEPT Research and Development Foundation. Today, we bring to you an episode on Trust is the Heart for Urban Wellbeing. In this episode, we have Anna Ontrigoza currently working on Salutbar project from Dextrial University US and Teresa Anderson from Connecting Stones Consulting based in Sydney, Australia. I welcome you both on this episode. Thank you so much, Ali, for inviting us to be here. And Anna, it's lovely to be a part of a conversation with you again. Hi, Teresa. Thank you also, Shaley, for this opportunity to be reunited again and have a conversation about trust and data. Thanks, both of you. It's always interesting to see a conversation between you both. It is interesting to see how urban well-being is becoming a focus for most of the cities. And nowadays, it is extremely important to build trust when it comes to data sharing for representing real life examples and scenarios. We've seen this a lot during COVID and I would like to understand it more in depth from both of your experiences. Certainly, well, I'll I'll start off the conversation. It feels to me, so as, as a social informaticist and an ethicist, the issues of trust in relation to data sharing are have been for a long time a part of the work that I do. But it does feel like in the last two years, because of the COVID pandemic, trust um, has become very present as a topic of concern and a topic of conversation. And I think that largely because the data challenges that we are dealing with, not just as professionals in data industries, but as citizens in our communities, we're we're faced with data as it relates to life and death decisions. So the uncertainties in this dealing with the pandemic and trying to understand what is happening really surface the role of trust in relation to data. And it's not just in terms of trusting the data, it's the way that data is used by decision makers and the questions of trust and trustworthiness that come up with that and also then in relation to data practices. Uh, And that is, I think, certainly, Anna, in terms of how we started working together, that is something that is very present in the work that you've been doing within Salabal. Yes, Theresa. I think what what you mentioned in terms of of COVID, it's something, it's a kind of very clear example of how in front of a new disease and a new event that it's, you know, impact many aspects of life, and death, as, as you mentioned, it's something that it's exemplifying or it's, you know, putting more visible some challenges that we got in the data processing while we were working with other data related to death, but not directly to COVID uh, during Salorwal project, which is involving, you know, the harmonization and collection of data from many countries in Latin America 
and also, you know, trying to make them comparable and shareable for producing information that could be translated into actions in the region at the city level, but in many cities from Latin America. So many, I see what I see in front of this new COVID scenario is that many of the challenges are related to how we trust in the data related to COVID are happening also with other kind of data in regions and in countries that may not have good quality of data system in general. And so we have seen this before with, for example, death registration, life birth registration, which is also very intersecting other aspects of beyond the data that are related to the access to civil rights, the, the idea of uh, when you register a, a life birth, it's not only about that number in a data sheet, it's also accounting that that person is accessing to rights and it's accounted as a citizen, you know. That um, really surfaces the concerns around the politics of classification and the varying cultures of counting. You know, speaking there again more as a theorist than a practitioner on that, but I see that so vividly, not just in the current situation, but in terms of the ways that matters of health are dealt with and addressed, so that there is this invisible work that goes into the way that numbers are gathered and collected or that data, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, is collected. So what actually is considered worthy of being counted? And then how is it counted and how is it categorized and who is making those decisions? And increasingly, it feels like we're at a moment where that invisible work of data processing is, again, really becoming more visible because of the daily conversations or the more regular conversations about this in the general public. And so in relation to that, then we start to see how important it is to not just have the technical capacity to perform form these data techniques, but to also try to make visible how you are accounting for the decisions that you're making in those contexts. And that is one way of truly building trust in the process and in the way that you work with others who are collecting data that you might be combining at some point to build up a richer insight. Yes, definitely. And I see what you are mentioning. So exemplified by the fact, for example, the way we count death now related to COVID, for example, when you register a debt, how you accounted whether this uh, debt is due to COVID because COVID was the immediate expression or the immediate cause, like, for example, producing respiratory infection or creating, you know, cardiac affection because of COVID. But what if we consider other causes related to morbidity or mortality that maybe COVID would be you know, not the immediate cause, but it's related because uh, it's precipitating this as an upstreaming factor. I can imagine now or can think about, for example, all the suicides or all, you know, this death that were related or a sequence of mental health issues triggered by COVID uh, and the importance that we, you know, rediscuss the categorizations and the way we are explaining, you know, in terms of data the processes or the events that are happening in real life. Yeah, and I think that then there, the the challenges around undercounting or the concerns around who has made the decision about counting and how that then is contributes to an argument that is a data-based argument. So you know, we hear so often of people seeking to produce data-driven decision-making 
well, I like to say when I'm training people that data does not speak for itself, it's given a voice. I think there's a lot of really vivid examples about the different ways that the way that data is used is not just about the data itself, but about the work that has gone into the decision about determining data, what counts as data, who is counting that data. And so all that behind the scenes work is something that sits in a sense as a counterpoint to assumptions about data-driven decisioning. So actually, for all the talk about data as evidence, I like to say in the training that I do that data does not speak for itself, it's given a voice. And the voice behind that data, what determines whether it is accepted as truth or not, has a lot to do with actions of humans who are behind that work and communities, so not just individuals. So there are very clear examples of ways that prevailing group of, of people who are in positions of power are able to shape what constitutes data and what constitutes evidence. So that means that we have to be more critical, not just as people working in data industries, but also in terms of citizens for whom decisions are being made based on data. So that again raises this issue of trust and, and that whole tension around not just how trustworthy is the data that I'm working with as a practitioner, but if I'm sitting in a city, so I'll take my example right now, I'm in a city at this moment in time that is in an extended lockdown. And every day there is a press conference given by our local government giving the numbers, saying these are the statistics, this is where things stand today, this is what has happened in the last 24 hours. And again, these categorizations are happening as to which ones we have to worry about and who's where. Now, that doesn't count the, the countless casualties in relation to mental health. It doesn't count the stresses and the difficulties in various communities, particularly if there's multi- lingual communities there and there are factors that or impacts that may not be considered directly related to COVID. So there are costs, some of which are getting counted and some are not. And those then are converted into the evidence that is used to make decisions and actions on a daily basis and, and in policy more broadly. Now, if you're in a society that works with a, a democratic model, in theory, as a citizen, you have a way of shaping that future direction by having a voice in that conversation. But if that conversation is based on or has a great deal to do with referencing to data and data evidence, then how much literacy do you as a citizen have to be able to critique and question? If evidence is presented about your community and you question it, on what basis are you going to be able to question it? And also the understanding you have, the level of understanding you have, will also shape how trustworthy you feel that data is. So trust is never, uh, I think, a black and white trust, no trust. It's much more a spectrum. And it's a spectrum that's shaped by this complex web of relationships and interactions. And again, these are social <laughs> as well as technical considerations that we need to think about. Yes, I totally agree with you, Theresa. And when you are mentioning about how, you know, we need to have a critical perspective or thinking related to how we register the data or what kind of data we collected, it reminds me, you know, by the time we were at the Salarol project, harmonizing surveys, health surveys, it came up, you know, the question, or we were trying to create variables related to uh, women's access to reproductive health and reproductive preventive measures like, for example, access to pap smear. 
And you realize that in some countries, that question is asked to a certain age group of women, assuming that those were the women that are sexually active, or they are asked to women that are only married. And this is something, you know, that it's implying or imposing a kind of cultural bias on the data you are collecting that make it on one side complicated to compare with other countries, but on the other side, like thinking how many other, you know, respondents you leave behind just because they are not fulfilling that cultural value that you are imposing to that question or to that way of collecting data. Another example was in the moment that we were collecting, and I think, you know, that I like this example because I think it exemplifies how much ethic is related to the data collection process of data. Um, it's about when needed to process each of the mothers in the life birth registries, we were having a maternal age of one digit, like six years old, five years old. And it was a temptation to say, well, this is a data entry error because it might not be possible that a six-year-old girl could be a mother. But the question is, is this biological possible? And it could be, and it could be if, if it's if it is, you know, if it's possible, and if it's true, like not an, a data entry error, this might be meaning uh, another, you know, situation that it's ethically important to account because we are thinking about child abuse or a consequence of something that it's important also to be in the data as a way of accounting for a problem that is behind that data. So how much we need to work in that first level of the process of thinking the data, because this has, as, as Theresa was mentioning, translation in the community uh, and also in terms of how that circle is still moving on, because depending on the data you have, the evidence you can create, and that evidence is how that is translated into you know, allocation of resources in the community or actions in general. I really like that example, Anna. And you know, we've talked about this in some of the other events that we've collaborated on, where I think it also flags that, again, understanding your role as someone working in that data space and the power of categories and labels for downstream impacts. So you can't just think in terms of, oh, I'm only working on this one small set, particularly when you're starting to think about what has to happen to ensure that linked data is trustworthy. So that's not a direct question about trust in that, in the same way as the example I gave earlier about citizens and whether or not they trust something that's said from that. But certainly when you're working with complex data, that has these various sources, like the story you presented shows, you know, how, how much of that context is understood by others in, who are working with that data? Uh, and how connected are we to the potential implications of our actions? So, you know, in terms of trying to think about ways forward, you know, what can we do? So yes, trust is a concern and building trust and finding ways to demonstrate trustworthiness. Uh, so one strategy I think that really helps from inside this data space is to really be reminded of our humanity and to think about ways to approach our data practice with empathy and compassion. So that in most circles, if you are dealing with empathy, then you are contributing to a climate or a culture of trust and trustworthiness. So that you're also more likely I would argue, to also recognize the limits of your actions and your decisions. You're more likely to appreciate that you will not have the only way of seeing ways forward. 
So because so much of what we're dealing with, and again, on the topic of urban well-being, well-being itself is not just one category. Well-being is, is, is a journey. And it is not contained in whatever categorizations or projects that we're working on. In terms of the humans who are behind those data points, it is a much bigger, richer, complex mess. And I don't mean that in a bad way. That's just life is messy. Uh, and so you need to be prepared to accept that there is indeterminacy. You still need to be able to move forward. Uh, but you also need to be mindful of the responsibility you have for trying to find ways to work with those communities and make sure that the assumptions that are being made that then get passed on to larger data collections will more appropriately represent the people that you have been working with or have been studying or from whom this data has been collected. Yes, I think, you know, this approach to the data with empathy just thinking about the person beyond the data point, but also thinking of the perspective of the, the emotional reactions that processing data could have. It's also important, you know. I was greatly surprised by the last issue that the American Journal of Public Health released on, on July. It has been released, I think, two or, or three days ago. Uh, there was an article called Ghost in the Machine, the Emotional Gravity of Conducting Mortality Research, and this is about, it was explaining about, you know, the reactions that someone uh, working with mortality data was having because of thinking about, you know, the different reactions that data could have because this represent people who die. And I think this is maybe, I see this, this COVID scenario and the challenges we are having in terms of integrating data and producing data for actions as a, maybe a new way of having this conversation more actively and maybe more spread uh, across communities, because this is not important only for creating the or improving the data cycle in, in one community, but also to make it this shareable and this idea of improving or being more empathic about the, how we approach to data. It's also uh, improving the way we can share data and understand data from other cultures or another part of the world that are working maybe in the same discipline or in the same topics, but having other challenges uh, when, when dealing with data. Yeah, to give one example that is still COVID related, but I think in terms of, of what's happening with data, particularly around cities and smart city projects, you think about the kind of data that people collect. So increasingly, I think there has been a growing awareness of the need to be sensitive about data. We've therefore seen growth in the use of spatial data and very often spatial data and location-based data that can be de-identified, the argument goes, does not get into the challenges of more personal data. And yet, you know, it doesn't take a great deal of data acumen to be able to start to link data sets. So not understanding the context of and the complexity. So data is not collected in isolation. There are ways to start to build stories, whether they're true or not is another matter. Uh, but I think also the way forward with these apps um, and contact tracing, for instance, illustrates a way forward in general for dealing more respectfully with communities and working with communities and not just designing for them. So appreciating that there might be concerns and hesitancy and reluctance in, in a matter and finding ways to develop the, the data literacies of that community creating more participatory approaches, um, also not pretending to have all the answers or to say that, you know, yes, there, there is one single path. I think 
again, that comes back to revealing our humanity and our vulnerability, being comfortable with that. And that seems really the only way forward, although I'm biased. Yeah, I think that the example of the contracing apps, it's, it's appealing because also it, it, it exemplifies very well how you integrate different data that in a city that comes from uh, different sources and how this it's also implying that health, it's not determined only by health data, but how you have to account for all these other sources of data in terms of thinking about well-being and health in cities, you know, and one, that's one of the ideas of uh, working on urban health, things not related directly with health. It's also impacting like the shape of the cities and what happened in the city that it's not related directly to health are impacting in health. And so I think one of the challenges in the future will be more aware of, of how to integrate this, uh, not only sharing data of the, of the same resources, across the world, but also how we, in the same place, uh, we integrate uh, data for being more efficiently delivered to the communities. That's a lovely example. Thank you, Anna and Teresa. It's amazing to listen to both of you. And I would just like to bring in two very interesting points what I have observed is that there are two parts to trust. One is trusting the data, and the second one is trusting the authority who is collecting the data. So, you know, you need citizens' concern before you collect the data. And again, all these data needs to be interconnected to come to a holistic well-being lifestyle. So that's where our entire urban population wants to move ahead with urban well-being. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode from the Data Knowledge Action for Urban Systems podcast series. If you like our podcast and want to know more about the series, check out our website www.crtf.org and follow us on social media. Please leave a review, like, and share wherever you listen to the podcast. Look out for the next episodes and join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.